Thank you, David. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, I want to especially say hello if you're new. Uh, my name's Matt, and uh, I am usually here more often, but I've been away uh, for about three months on a sabbatical, first Sunday back. I'm really glad to be back. Uh, I just want to say again, thank you so much uh, for the time uh, as a church you, you gave us as a family and me personally, uh, so thankful for, uh, for you, for the elders, and in particular, uh, for the staff. I would like us just to appreciate, uh, with applause, because that's how we do it, the staff. Uh, they really <clears throat> made it possible. Uh, David taking most of the preaching and Tim helping, everyone else just filling in. Uh, it was really uh, a joy to be able to go away and just know that things were well taken care of. I didn't worry about it at all. And uh, as you may have heard from my email, I accomplished a lot. I learned languages, I read books, I wrote books, I did all the things you would expect. No, I didn't do much of that. But it was uh, a really great time away, and, uh, and I really am expecting to see the fruit of this time in the next season of ministry for, for me personally, for us as a church. So I'm ready to be back, though. I'm excited to be back and uh, excited to be in the Word with you this morning. So let me pray, and then we'll, we'll see our text. Uh, Lord God. What a joy it is to come back uh, to a church home. Uh, Lord, we had a chance to, to visit many other local churches, and it is a wondrous thing that the church is united, the Christian church, no matter where you go in the world, there are people uh, loving Jesus, worshiping Jesus. That's, that's a, a cool thing, but it's, it's great to come back home. And I'm so thankful, Lord, for the call that you placed on my life and, uh, and our life as a family to plant this church so thankful for all the things you've, you've done in the, the years leading up to this moment, and I just, I pray for more of it. I pray that we as a church uh, would truly desire uh, to make Jesus known uh, to ourselves, to each other, and to our community. And I pray that there would be a real sense of continued expectation that as we gather each week, uh, that you will speak to your people, and that we will be transformed, we will be renewed. And uh, so I pray for that. I pray that uh, today would be a day whether we've been here since the church was planted or it's our first day, uh, that we would experience you in a deep way and uh, that we would be able to understand what it means that you are our Lord and Savior. So I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, if you are uh, new here, uh, there's a sermon series that you've been going through called The Road to Jerusalem uh, because Jesus uh, was literally on a road uh, heading to Jerusalem uh, for the last time. And uh, in this last uh, few sermons, I've been listening along, I've, I've seen that, that Jesus has been, uh, I'm going to say, in, a, in sort of a, a series of conflicts, you could say, a series of interactions with the religious leaders at the time. And as I was listening, as I was thinking about it, it seems, you know, you could picture it kind of like a, maybe, maybe not an action movie, any movie with a, with a hero where there's opposition, Right? A fist fight is maybe putting it too bluntly, but that's kind of what's been going on. Jesus has been attacked, at least three, three attacks by the, the religious leaders uh, in uh, chapter 20. We've seen them in the last few weeks. His authority was, was challenged. Uh, they, they asked him some tricky questions about paying taxes, trying to trip him up, trying to trap him. They asked him some weird questions about the resurrection, trying to kind of to, to again uh, show his lack of authority. And the whole time Jesus has been uh, on the defense and he's been handling it no problem, right? Just like an action hero who knows his, his defensive maneuvers, right? He's been pairing, he's been, he's been moving, he's been dodging. But last week uh, he went on the offensive. 
Last week, if you were with us, we saw that Jesus uh, wasn't just defending the attacks from the religious leaders, but now he was attacking them. He was asking them some questions. Last week, he, he wanted to reveal the fact that even though they were supposed to be, you know, theologically astute, they're supposed to be the ones with all the answers, they didn't even really understand who the Christ was. Ask them kind of a simple, straightforward question about the relationship between the Christ and King David. They had, they had no answer. He was, he was exposing their lack of understanding for the crowd. But this week, he, he shifts. He kind of parries and has another blow, this time not about their theological understanding, but about their lifestyle. And just to be clear, uh, Jesus isn't just hankering for a fight, right? He's, he's not just, he doesn't just love to get in, into conflict. He doesn't just want to, to sort of take these people's position. It's not a power play. Jesus sees that these leaders that the people have been following, uh, the, the way that they're leading and their understanding of God is actually doing harm to the people. It's actually hurting their faith. And so he's wanting to warn them. And in our text today, it's, it's actually very clear because he just comes out publicly and, and says, beware of, of these guys. And uh, so before we go any further, let's read the text. It's not long. And then uh, we'll see what Jesus is warning everyone about. So verse 45 of Luke chapter 20. And in the hearing of all the people, he, Jesus, said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So that's our, our text. And clearly you can see that his warning is about the scribes. That's kind of our, our first main point. Beware of the scribes. So who are the scribes? Uh, they, were the, they were like the scholars of the day. Uh, they were uh, experts in the Old Testament, experts in the law of God. Uh, sometimes they were called lawyers, but they weren't like civil lawyers. It's just that they were experts in, in the law. If you wanted to know what God said you could do, what God said you couldn't do, you would go to them. And they were the ones sort of dispensing this, this biblical understanding to the people. They were highly esteemed, highly influential. But Jesus clearly is is very critical of them. He's saying, beware of these guys. Why? Well, he points to three things that we can kind of see in the text, three reasons why the people should, should not follow them, should actually be beware of them. So let's look at them. The first thing we see is that he's critical of their, their pride, their sense of pride. Verse uh, 46, he says, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, best seats in the synagogues, places of honor. They did actually wear long robes, long white robes with tassels at the bottom. Uh, if you picture the ancient times, it's probably a pretty grimy place, right? Pretty dirty, sweaty place. Uh, so they would walk through the marketplaces kind of gleaming white. And the custom was wherever they walked, uh, people would, uh, would stop, would stand up and acknowledge them. Uh, unless you were a tradesperson because they didn't want people like on scaffolding, right? Every few minutes coming out there again, having to stop what they're doing. So if you're a tradesperson, you're, you know, that was okay. But everyone else, they had to, they had to stand up and, and acknowledge them. And you can imagine that uh, these, uh, these scribes, they loved it, right? They probably did laps in the marketplace. People, everyone stop, hello, Rabbi, good to see you, right? They would just kind of glide along. They were feeding off of the, the accolades, the attention. They loved being influential. They loved this position of, a, of authority. In the synagogues, 
would work just like this. And most people would be facing the front, but they would have a seat up at the front facing the people so that everyone could look at them, right? And they could see how solemn, how, how, how they were, mm, right? How they were really into the worship. They, were really, they wanted everyone to see how holy they were. They just basked in that kind of attention. At feasts, same thing. You walk in the door, here you are, here's the best seat. Jesus has some parables about this, how you shouldn't, you shouldn't do that, right? You shouldn't be always eager for the best seat of honor. You should allow someone to, to honor you, but they were, they were right in there, right? This speaking to their sense of, of superiority, their sense of inflated ego, that they just, they just drunk all of this in. They loved it. And it reminds us of what can happen when you have a place of authority, a, a place of prominence. Now, we should be careful. Some of this is not, I mean, it's not necessarily a sinful wrong thing simply to be recognized. I mean, if you have a, a public role, you're, you're going to be recognized. I remember when I uh, taught elementary school at Glen Eyre, uh, we lived five minutes away. I couldn't, I couldn't go to Safeway. I couldn't go to the mall without having someone come up to me, Mr. Claus, Mr. Claus, talk to me. It, I wasn't basking in it as I took my lemons from, I just was, it was just there, right? Uh, it's okay. That's, it's natural that if you're a public figure, you're going to be recognized. That's not the issue. The issue is the, the heart. Right? What was their attitude of their heart? Were they loving it? Were they, were they looking for more of it? Did they go you know, everywhere they could to make sure they could have people acknowledge them? Two, two s- stories came to mind sort of to contrast this, just to gain kind of greater insight. Uh, one was something I read. One was something that I experienced. Uh, the thing I read was I read an article uh, at some point about Bill Clinton. Uh, just talking about him after he'd been president and uh, just talking about kind of the kind of person he was, how he was just a people person, just love, just love being in the presence of others, love telling stories. And uh, they were describing this one dinner party where he was there, he was kind of holding court, you know, in the living room, everyone was there telling story after story. And it was getting later and later. It was like, you know, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock. By 2 o'clock, the host had to come and say, look, I'm Sorry, Mr. President, but the, the staff has to go home. We, we, everyone's tired. We have to go home. And they said the look on his face was just crestfallen. Like he just, he just, he wanted to be there forever. He just, he just loved, he loved it. He loved being the center of attention. And that contrasted in my mind with another sort of public figure I had a chance to meet. Name's John Piper. He's a pastor and writer. Some of you may, may know him. And when he came to town a couple times, I've had a chance to host him, pick him up from the airport. And I remember uh, when he was speaking, he had an aide with him. And uh, so there's like a few thousand people that would come to listen to him speak. And he said to his aide, listen, after I'm done, give me about 10 minutes and, and then come and, and take, take me out of there. I was like, okay, that's interesting. So I heard him speak. Beak, hadn't seen him speak before, live, it was, it was great. And uh, afterwards, all done, he kind of he just stood up and people began to, to flock, right? They just kind of came around him. Hi, Pastor John, thanks so much for your ministry, right? Just, just appreciating him, asking for prayer, all these things. And you could see the, the crowd just growing and, and growing. And after about 10 minutes or so, the aide kind of went in. Ah, sorry, we have to go. Didn't take, had to go back in again. Look, I'm sorry, we really, we really have to go. As he was going to the exit, people coming, I just wanted, they were like following him, but he finally got out. And I could see that the, the whole reason for that was partly because if he hadn't left, that they would just stay there forever and ever and ever. And partly, I'm sure he was tired, but partly I think also he realized that that, that wouldn't be good for his soul to have that, that just increasing state of recognition and accolades and thank you so much and you're so, so great. He didn't want that. I had someone say to me that public accolades, it's something that maybe you, you, 
you waft. You know, like in science class, when there's a, they teach you, right? There's some chemical. You're supposed to just waft it, right? You don't, you don't drink it in, right? It could burn your lungs. It's that kind of a thing. When you realize that that kind of attention is actually damaging, toxic to your soul, you want to keep it at a distance. You can't, you can't separate yourself completely because you're in a position of, you're a public figure. But how do you interact with that? Is, is it inflating your ego? Is it inflating your sense of self? For the scribes, they loved it, right? They were basking in it. They, they, they were drinking it up and it was corrupting them. And Jesus is saying, beware of these guys. Look at the way that they're behaving. Look at the way that they're interacting, the way that they see themselves. It's toxic. Toxic for you, toxic for the, the ministries that they're leading. Pride is the main reason, the first reason that he's criticizing them. But also there's greed. We see it there in verse 47. Just briefly, he says, they also are those who devour widows' houses. Uh, now, widows, especially in that time, were some of the most vulnerable. Uh, they were women, obviously, whose uh, husbands used to, in that culture, they'd be the ones who would earn a salary, support the family, the husband was gone. And so they were in a very vulnerable position. Uh, the word from uh, the Bible about how the church should interact, how they should care for widows, is very clear. Uh, here's James 1.27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So uh, there's other um, details in the New Testament in Acts where it's like, look, you should know who the widows are in your church. Those who are vulnerable orphans, you should visit them, meaning care for them. You should care for them financially. There's other details about that. That's the right way to help those in need. But that's not what the scribes are doing. When it says devouring their houses, obviously it's a metaphor, but what they would do is in different ways erode the wealth of the widows. Sometimes it was just leaning on their hospitality too much, come over for lunch every other day, right? Be fed, food, they didn't have much food, they're, they're happy, oh, thank you so much, right? Getting all the, the food for themselves. Sometimes it was more explicit. Sometimes they would go and, and charge fees for extra prayers, extra religious services. Sometimes they would seek to help manage, let me help you manage your household and they would take the benefit. They would erode away whatever small assets the widows had left. Jesus says it's, it's despicable. It's, it's a travesty. Beware of, of these, your leaders, who are treating the most vulnerable among you. That's, that's not the way the people of God should treat each other. They should be there for the good of those in need, caring for those in need. It's not what the scribes are doing. Lastly, and maybe most importantly, he criticizes them for their hypocrisy. And we see this again just in a little snippet uh, in verse 47. It says, For a pretense, they make long prayers. Now, again, we have to be a bit discerning here. It, the length of the prayer is not the issue, uh, necessarily. We, uh, in our travels, we did a road trip um, during the sabbatical, and we uh, were in Portland, and we went to a church there. And uh, the opening prayer of this uh, church service, I, I would just say, was fairly long. Uh, there was a point where a few of the Glezos family exchanged glances and are like, has he prayed for every country in the world? Who's he praying? He just, there, it was a very long prayer, but I would say it wasn't a pretentious prayer. This, this guy just had a lot to pray for and really wanted, with the whole church gathered, wanted to pray both for the weather and for geopolitics and everything in between. It was just, it was okay. It, we shouldn't be afraid of long prayers. Jesus prayed all night sometimes. So the length of the prayer isn't the issue. Again, it's the heart. And what we see here is, is the word that helps us understand is that they did this for a pretense. A pretense is, uh, is like a false display. Uh, 
right? What the scribes wanted is when they started praying for everyone to be like, wow, that, that guy's holy. Man, he really loves God because they just couldn't stop praying. Praying loud, weeping as they pray, big show of, of prayer. And it wasn't because their heart was actually overflowing with devotion to God. They just wanted people to look at them and think that that was the case. And that's hypocrisy, right? Where you're, you're pretending to be one thing on the outside, but on the inside, you're something totally different. And hypocrisy is incredibly destructive. I mean, those, those who suffer from hypocrisy don't, don't really know themselves and are seeking not to be known by God or by others, but just to put on a brave face. And it's hugely destructive. In any type of relationship, because you, you can never actually really get to know the person, but also the person itself, they're self-deceived. And if they're in leadership, they're going to lead people without a genuine sense of intimacy with God, without a sense of, of humility. So Jesus is saying, look, you, you gotta beware of these guys. You, you should know what they're like. In fact, if, if everyone had their eyes open, you could see what they're like. We can see the way that they're behaving, the way that they are acting. And the immediate application for them was the, the person Jesus was pointing at. It was pretty clear. Right? That, that's what I'm telling you. My instruction here is you, sh you should be careful. You shouldn't listen to them. They're not trustworthy. But you could take that and apply it to us today in an immediate sense. Meaning, those in leadership, you need to be careful of the ones that you are following. The immediate application here really is, is for me, for the elders of our church, for those in positions of leadership, that, that we would be wary lest any of this take root in our heart. And we begin to lead out of a spiritual deficit, out of, a, out of a, a falseness. Because I think many of us have been in churches where that's the case and it always ends in destruction. It always ends in people being hurt. It always ends in people getting farther and farther away from the Lord because there's, a, there's not a genuineness in terms of those that are seeking to lead others to know the Lord when they don't know the Lord themselves. So my immediate application is simply, God, help me. God, help me not, not to be this kind of leader, not to, to lead in this way, and God, help us as a church that our leadership would feel the conviction and the warning that comes from these texts and that we would allow and invite accountability and that people would be able to speak into our lives, that we'd be ready to hear it, and that you would see evidence of the opposite of these things. This is something that leaders need to pay attention to, community group leaders, uh, youth leaders, Sunday school leaders, all of us, that it is possible, very possible, for us to be a scribe in that way. So that's the immediate application, but, but I don't think that's the only intention that Jesus has. He is clearly calling out the scribes. He, wa he wants them to understand their falseness and all this, but if you think about what Jesus is saying to the people, He's warning them about the scribes because he doesn't want them to be influenced by the scribes, right? That's the whole point. Don't see how they actually are and don't be like that. So there's something that could be passed on. He's not, he's not just saying, look, this is just for them. You guys are just here to listen. I'm really, he's speaking to everyone. So what is he saying? He's saying, if you become like them, you also will be harmed. Your faith will be harmed. So what, what is it? If you had to put it in one word, what is he warning us about, all of us? I would say it like this. 
We need to beware of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. If there's one word I think that describes the scribes well, it's that they were self-righteous. They, they, they felt like they had it all together. You see it in their pride. You see it in their, their greed that they felt like they could, they could do that. You see it in their hypocrisy that they aren't interested in help from others. They've got it all together in themselves. This is a very, very dangerous thing for those in leadership, but for anyone in the church. And so I want to talk just a bit for us to apply it to us, kind of all of us. Why should we be concerned about self-righteousness? Two, two dangers, two clear dangers that there are for those who are suffering from self-righteousness. Number one, that we see here in our text, a self-righteousness condemns us to hell. And we see it in the end of verse 47. They will receive the greater condemnation. Condemnation there doesn't just mean condemned before men. It means condemned before God. It means that in their sin, they will be condemned on the day of judgment. Why? Because they're self-righteous. Because they think they got it all together. Because they don't think they need anyone else's help. And that means they don't actually think they need God's help. Because they're experts in the law. They know exactly what God said. And they can follow it to a T. And they think that if they just got all of the I's and T's dotted or crossed, I got it mixed up. If they think if they can do that, 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 that they're fine. And so they're not open to anyone giving insight, anyone bringing any kind of, hey, what about this? They're, they're, they're rock solid. But the problem is that they don't realize that when you think you've got the law of God figured out and that you're doing it perfectly, you've already got pride eroding your sense of righteousness. And so those who are self-righteous are never open to what they really need, which is the righteousness that comes from God himself. This is what we see in the New Testament. In particular, when it comes, Jesus is there. This is what he's actually done for us at the cross. That he has lived the perfect life that we can never live, even if we think we can. And that he's gifted it to us by faith. We see this in Philippians. And let's make sure we're clear about why this is so dangerous. Here's Paul writing about just why his why he's so focused on Christ, why he needs Jesus. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see the two kinds of righteousness. He's saying there is, there is a kind of righteous people try to get. It's those who think they know the Bible really well and think they do it all perfectly. They think they keep the law. He's saying, I don't want that. It's rubbish. It's, it's never going to stand on the day of judgment because that righteousness, always, it's always got holes in it. There's no way that us in our sin as human beings are able to achieve that kind of righteousness. And there's such a blindness about this. I just... On the radio the other day, I was listening to a talk show, and I don't know what they were talking about, but what grabbed me was them saying, you hear this all the time, them saying, you know what, what I've learned is just, you know, people are essentially good, right? We're good people, and if we would just kind of work together more, that then we could just really fix things up. And I was like, where are you living? Where, where, do, you, where do you look around and you think that humanity is really doing a bang-up job of, of things? It's, it's sure, technology's improving, but our society... Man, if we look at the way that we treat people, 
the, the effects of what it means to be human, we, sh- we should not be greatly encouraged. And what we need, more than anything else, is help from God. And the problem with those who are self-righteous is that we, we just, we don't see that need. We think that we got it all figured out. Look at, look at how Jesus speaks about those who are truly blessed, truly blessed by God. This is Matthew 5, uh, some of the Beatitudes. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Why are they satisfied? Because they're hungry. They're, they're thirsty. They're looking to God for the thing that they don't have. And then God in his grace, he gives it to them in Christ. And they're satisfied. They are the ones. The scribes, they're not thirsty in this way. They're not hungry. They, they've, they've got everything that they need. They think they do. And so in their own self-sufficiency, they float through life and they're missing They're missing the true gift of God. And that is what it means to be condemned. That we think we've got it all figured out and yet we we are missing what we truly need. I did a little reading on my sabbatical. One of the books uh, I reread, short book, uh, was called The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. It's not a marriage book. Uh, it's It's a book about heaven and hell, about the separation, the divorce between heaven and hell. And it's this kind of thought experiment of what would happen. He's, he's thinking, what would happen if uh, a group of people from hell got on a bus and came up to heaven, the ed- edges of heaven, and they got out and were invited to go in? So look, this doesn't actually happen, okay? Just don't freak out. It's not some weird thing, theology. It's just an idea. And, and the point of it is because it gives him an opportunity to sort of illustrate what happens when someone's heart, who is self-righteous, self-sufficient, who's been condemned for their sin, goes up and is even offered the righteousness of God, the heaven entrance, most of them get back on the bus. They're preoccupied with all sorts of other things. There's all these different people. It kind of gives little vignettes about the human heart. But but here's how it's summarized. One of the characters says this. I think this is interesting. says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it will be opened. The self-righteous are never knocking. The self-righteous are never seeking. The scribes weren't on their knees genuinely asking for the, the mercy of God. They thought they had it figured out. And so because of that, they were lost. We should be concerned that this is growing in our own hearts. And the challenge of it is that it's hard to see. Right? It, it, it blinds us because we feel okay. We feel like we have everything that, that we need. And so we might come to a church service every now and again. We might even read our Bible every now and again. But, but for most of the time, I mean, they were experts in the law. They didn't have a genuine thirst for the Lord. And so they missed. They missed what God actually had to offer. They were condemned. All of us, any of us, who does not seek the righteousness of Christ will be condemned in our sin. Now, one thing that's interesting, if you look in our text, is uh, is how the condemnation is described. It says they will receive greater uh, condemnation. That's, That's interesting. 
Because it sounds like there's like a spectrum of, of judgment, which, which you might not have thought about before. So let's just take a little theological sidebar, super fun, I know, um, to think about this, because this is in fact what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that all sin equally condemns us to hell, apart from the grace of God, meaning whether you are a mass murderer or whether you're envious or jealous or anything in between, you are committing a crime against the God of the universe, and so we are all justly condemned. But, but there are variations in the degree of punishment for those who go to hell, which you may not have realized. And we see this pretty clearly in scriptures. So here's a couple places. Luke 12 uh, is a time where Jesus is, is sharing a parable. This is a parable. He tells a lot of these kind of parables where a master goes away and then leaves his servants with instructions of what to do. And then he comes back and he rewards those servants who've done the right thing. And he gives consequences to those who didn't. And it's a picture of what happened when Jesus will go and come back. And so when he comes back, there are certain uh, servants who did the right thing. He, he you know, uh, approves of them. They're, they're blessed. Blessed is the servant whom his master will find doing when he comes. But look at the servants who did not do what the master told them to do. Uh, he told them to do. Verses 47 and 48. And the servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. See, there's, there's variation. There's a degree and the degree there had to do with how much knowledge they had about, in this case, what, what God was saying. And so the, the message is pretty clear that on the day of judgment, there will be condemnation for all those who are in sin, but it's not just like a blanket judgment. There will be specific justice attached to the degree to which you actually understand the things of God because it increases your responsibility and culpability. It's just like, just like when they're sentencing in our court system, right? There's a difference. You can have someone who's guilty of manslaughter, guilty of first-degree murder. They both killed someone, but the sentence will be different because it's justice. And if it's, if it's not, if it's too light a sentence, we cry, this is unjust. It's not right. What we're told here in Scripture is that no one on the day of judgment will be able to say, this, is, this isn't right. This is unjust. We have a perfect judge who will judge justly every single element, not just of what we've done, but the degree to which we knew and understood the light of God. There's one other part where it kind of ties more to our text, James 3.1, where it says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. That's the scribes, right? That's why Jesus is calling them out. He doesn't just walk through the marketplace and call out, you know, uh, Tom and Jerry and I don't know uh, Hebrew names. But he says, he doesn't just call out anyone. These are, these are people in authority. They are the ones who should know better because they're influence. They're, they're causing huge havoc and, and heartache as they lead people in the wrong direction. So they're going to be judged more harshly. So just for us to understand, the justice of God goes down to that detail in terms of the understanding of our minds and the inclination of our heart. Okay, theological sidebar over. Hope that was helpful. And hopefully you see the gravity of what Jesus is talking about. Right? When he's, when he's warning them about the scribes, he's really warning each person, don't, don't be like them. Don't allow your heart to grow in self-righteousness. It will separate you, prevent you from knowing the Lord. Because to the extent that you think you're, you're fine, you will never seek help from God. It has eternal consequences. Ones that we should wrestle with. One that we should feel the weight of. 
because in feeling the weight, we can, we can go to Christ. That's the, the whole point is that we can't do it, and it's, it's okay because Jesus has, and he wants for us to experience the saving grace of the cross. So beware of self-righteousness because it condemns us to hell, but there is another consequence. There's another danger here. Not so much for, for between us and the Lord, but for us and other people. Because when we are self-righteous, it, it makes us unloving. See, people who haven't actually experienced the grace of God, they don't see any need to show grace to the people in their lives. Like, think of the scribes. If you read through the, the New Testament and see the way that they treated people, right? they were a harsh leadership team. When there was a law to be kept, they didn't, you, you kept that law. And if you broke it, you were going to get the full extent of the law. Think of the woman, con adultery, drag her into the street, stone her. She broke the law. She gets the, the consequence. She gets the punishment. What they were teaching people about God is that God is a God of judgment all the time. And that you better toe the line. You better be good enough. If you aren't, then you're going to hear it. You're going to feel guilty about it. You're going to feel the weight of it. There's no grace. They were experts in the Old Testament. And yet they completely missed the fact that God is a God of grace in the Old Testament. It's not true what you hear. That a God of judgment in the Old Testament somehow transformed into a God of grace in the New Testament. He's the same God the whole time. And if you read through, you see story after story of, of his saving work, of his patience, of his grace, of his steadfast love over and over and over again. And someone who knows that, someone who's experienced that, will interact with the people in their lives like that. But the scribes, they were a hard people. And they made hard people. Everyone was just living in fear on eggshells all the time. That the scribes might find out what they had done, what they'd done on the Sabbath, what they, if they'd gone to help someone, anything, and they were always in fear of them and the Lord. And the truth is that some of us are living in homes like that or in relationships like that, have, have friendships like that because there are people in our lives that haven't really experienced the grace of God. There's few things more destructive than a, than a self-righteous parent who, who is just all about the law. There's few things more hurtful than a self-righteous spouse who, who is so convinced that they have things all together and so critical, so condemning of the, the people in their family who just can't, can't measure up. There's nothing more destructive than a self-righteous pastor and again, my application for us is, God, God, help us. God, help me. So often that's, that's been the case for me. What we need is to see that without the saving work of God in our own lives, we, we, will, we will be separated from God and we will only hurt the people around us. Just think of what kind of a church we're going to end up being if we're so focused on the things that people aren't doing right rather than the fact that, that we've experienced the grace in spite of our failings and that God has brought people into our lives that we might, we might show them love and, and understanding. 
Jesus wants us to beware of the scribes because he doesn't, he doesn't want his church to be like them. He, he wants for his church and his people to be a place, to be a light in the world. To people to see the contrast to, to, the, to the hard reality of living out there in the world without the true grace and true love and true understanding and then to walk through the doors of the church or into a, a Christian home or a Christian family and, and to have grace extended, forgiveness, patience, understanding. We need God's help with this. We need to forgive each other. If you're wondering whether this might be a, a problem for you, a good test is just, do you find it easy uh, to hear the things that you might be doing wrong? Like, is it easy in the people in your life to come up and, and just share something that, that, that you've hurt them in a certain way? What kind of defensive mechanisms come up? Are they immediate? Are they harsh? Do you have a list ready to go of all the ways that you're going to hammer them back? Or are you, are you ready to listen? Do people in your life ever hear you apologize? Do they see that you're desperate for the, the transforming work of God and that you're actually broken when sin is exposed, that you, that you bring it to light and you're just, you're heartbroken? Self-righteousness makes us unloving, but the good news is that we don't stay that way by God's grace and power. That, that as we begin to experience the, the transforming love of God, that we can actually see the depth of our sin, like see it clearly, and, and then see what Jesus did. We don't deserve anything, and yet he came. He lived he, here enduring all of this, talking with these foolish people who are just at him all the time, and he's dying for them, and he's... He's loving them still. When that begins to take root in us, man, it's so, it's so much easier to love the people around us. Right? When we feel filled, when, when our, our soul is satisfied, we experience the grace of God, and then we are able to share that with others. What a joy it is. So I want to I pray that for us. And if there's a question that we can walk away kind of asking ourselves, I think it's this. What are we thirsty for? Are we thirsty? Are we a people thirsty for the righteousness of Christ? Like, do we see that we don't have anything like it? Do we see that on our own, we will always be thirsty and hungry and we'll even be deceiving ourselves, ignorant of it, and get to the end of our days and realize we have nothing that we need Christ, he's everything. So I want to pray that for us. Pray that we as a church would, would hear this message and that we would heed it and run to Christ. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, it's hard for us to see ourselves clearly I confess, Lord, there's, there's so many times when I felt justified in my own actions, when I felt I didn't feel a need to turn to you, to confess sin, and, and yet I needed to. I pray, 
I pray for us. I pray for myself. I pray, Lord, that we would, uh, we wouldn't live in fear of making mistakes. We wouldn't live in fear of doing the wrong thing. But God, that we would realize that, that that's why you came, Jesus. That you came towards us in our sin. You came towards us in our defiance. You came towards us as we were turning our back on you, giving you the finger, saying we don't need anything to do with you. And you came towards us. And that no matter how wrong we are, no matter how hard our heart is, your arms are open. And so God, I, I pray that we would, we would be thirsty for your righteousness. We would receive it. We would confess our sin. We would experience the forgiveness that comes through Christ. And then I pray that from that, we would, we would just see opportunities all around us, in our home, in our, in our church, in our everywhere, that we, that we know people, that we would seek to be loving in this way. Not that we don't hold each other to account, Lord. Yes, we, we call out sin. We, we seek to lead people in holiness. But that primarily people would know that we, we love them because you loved us. And so please, I pray for your transforming power in our own lives as individuals and, and as a church. And I pray that you would get much glory for the work you do. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.